At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? All right, good morning, church. Welcome to worship. I'm glad to be with you guys as we gather in Jesus' name to declare his praise and encourage one another and hear from his word. My name's C.T. Eldridge. If we haven't met yet, I have the joy of serving here as the campus pastor. And while we're continuing to work through this sermon series Matthew 24 through 25 is where we are for these several weeks leading up to Easter. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, the Gospel of Matthew is about three quarters of the way through, and we're in chapter 24, verses 29 through 35. Chapter 24, verses 29 through 35. And we've titled this sermon series, What Now? Because Jesus is at the end of his ministry, he's at the end of his life on earth, and he's having this conversation with his disciples about what it will be like when he's gone. Because he's about to be betrayed, he's about to be arrested, he's about to be crucified, he's going to be raised, but he's also going to ascend to heaven, and he's going to be gone in a way. And so he's telling them about what will happen when he's gone. He's going to tell them about some things that are going to happen in the immediate future, which is what we're looking at today and what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Starting next week, he's also going to tell them about some things in the distant future. We'll look at leading all the way up to Easter. So let me read these verses for us, and then we'll dive back into it. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 35. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather God's elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The great American eclipse. Just a few summers ago, in the August of 2017, the heavens captured our nation's attention as never before. This phenomenon known by astronomers as a total solar eclipse. 
This takes place when the moon perfectly lines up between the earth and the sun, blocking the light from the sun, casting a moon-sized shadow across the earth. It was the first time anything like this had happened in 99 years. Furthermore, this total solar eclipse took place in the middle of the day, turning day into night well before the day was actually over. And this event proved the power of the heavens to arrest the attention of our entire country. Historic traffic jams occurred as drivers pulled over to look at the eclipse. Large viewing parties gathered all over the country to take in this earth-darkening event, and every store from Walmart to gas stations profited by selling us sunproof sunglasses that supposedly allowed us to look directly at the sun without blinding our eyes. I'm not sure I should have fallen for that one, but hey, once every 99 years, you know? Yes, there's something about skyward heavenly activity that grips our hearts and minds of those of us who dwell on earth. Because the heavens are normally so stable. They're normally so dependable. We even count our seasons by the stars. So when something does happen different in the skies, it is particularly impressive and it's often particularly alarming. When something unique, when something different occurs in the ever-reliable skies, it's impossible to ignore. Well, this morning, as we continue in our sermon series, What Now?, we're going to see Jesus utilize galaxy-shaking, earth-shattering language to convey what's happening when the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. Remember in this series, we're focusing on Matthew 24 and 25, these chapters that are often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, because that's where this conversation takes place between Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just east of the city of Jerusalem. And you remember that Jesus and his disciples came to the Mount of Olives from the temple in Jerusalem. And while they had been in the temple, Jesus pronounced judgment against the religious establishment there. He aggressively, verbally cut down the scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders who had grown cold-hearted and hypocritical. And as Jesus and his disciples left the temple in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. Well, the disciples are understandably astounded by this prediction, and they want to know, when will this event occur? So in chapter 24, verse 3, they ask Jesus, when will these things be? In other words, when will the temple be taken down? And he says to them, don't be alarmed when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed when you see famines and earthquakes. Don't be alarmed when you hear of false Christs and persecution against the church. Rather, what they should be alarmed about is what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation in chapter 24, verse 15. When that event occurs, then you should flee Jerusalem because it is about to go down. And the end of the temple is near and it is going to be nasty, brutal, and deadly for all who are in Jerusalem. That's exactly what happened in AD 70. 
Well, in the text we're looking at today, Jesus is picking up the timeline of events leading up to the destruction of the temple. In verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So he's referring to the tribulation that took place during the abomination of desolation described in verse 15. After that terrible event occurs, verse 29 again, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall down from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. So now we see how Jesus brings in this cataclysmic language to describe the events that unfold here. This language could be likened to the way we say earth shattering. Or sometimes we'll say that rocked my world or that flipped my world upside down. We use this language of global proportions to describe just how drastic, just how desperate a situation is. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing with the language he's using here. The sun is darkened. The moon is blacked out. The stars are falling. The heavens are shaking. But Jesus isn't simply using this language for rhetorical impact on our imaginations. He's using this language because it would have been familiar to his original Jewish audience. In the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah uses similar language to what Jesus uses here. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, the prophet says this, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And then in verse 13 of that same chapter, Isaiah says, therefore I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So that last bit is important. Isaiah is telling us these images of the sun losing light, of the stars falling, of the heavens trembling, what they're indicative of is the Lord's wrath, the Lord's judgment. Isaiah likens the coming of God's judgment to the upheaval of the entire cosmos. And in the context of Isaiah 13, we can see the prophet describing the Lord's judgment against the Babylonian empire. That was the empire in rule during Isaiah's day. But now in Matthew 24, Jesus uses this same language to describe the judgment that is coming against Israel and against the temple. The very people, Israel, and the very place, the temple, that were meant to be light in the world and a beacon of truth is now going to be, Jesus says, the recipient of divine, apocalyptic, earth-shattering, world-shaking judgment. Through the destruction of the temple, Israel is judged. So think about some of the language we'll use when we want to promise someone that we're going to beat someone at a game. My sons recently got a miniature air hockey table for Christmas. It's about this high off the ground, so it's super awkward and hard on my knees to play, but we go at it. Before we open a match, they'll threaten me by saying, Dad, I'm about to bring the thunder. Or when I'm playing in the annual Turkey Day Bowl against my young nephews, they might say, talking trash to me, Uncle CT, we're about to drop bombs on you. You see, they use this apocalyptic, 
powerful imagery to describe the beatdown they're about to give me. Well, that's similar to what Jesus is doing here when he describes the destruction of the temple by saying the sun, the moon will be blacked out. The stars are going to burn out. The heavens will be shook. In other words, the temple is about to be crushed. You see, Jesus had warned the religious leaders throughout his ministry. Jesus warned the religious leaders that every tree not bearing fruit would be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 12. And he had warned the religious leaders that he'd seen greater faith in the Gentiles than he had in the people of Israel. You remember in Romans chapter 8? I mean, Matthew chapter 8, where he speaks to the Roman centurion and says, I hadn't seen such faith in an Israelite that I see in this Gentile. And he warned them later in chapter 8 that the sons of the kingdom, a reference to the Jews, the sons of the kingdom would be taken away from them and given to, I'm sorry, the sons of the kingdom would be thrown into outer darkness. And he warned the Pharisees and scribes in chapter 21 that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruit. Jesus had warned the religious leaders in Jerusalem throughout his ministry, if they did not repent, destruction would come. And now in this definitive, powerful, public way, God judges Israel through the destruction of the temple. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, They had many advantages when it came to understanding who God is and his purposes in the world. The Jews were the recipients of God's promises. They were entrusted with the sacred scriptures. They were given proper instruction in the worship of God. They had the tabernacle under Moses. They had the temple under Solomon. These two places that God's presence dwelt in. And yet, still, advantage though they were, Israel became infected by arrogance greed, and lust. Their hearts grew cold, their lives were plagued by hypocrisy, and there seems to have been this presumption, hey, we're the people of God. God won't judge us. So church, we must learn from their example. If Israel can fall from their place of prominence, if Israel can be drawn into compromise, hypocrisy, and empty religion, then so Can we? We may read the Gospels and find ourselves bewildered that the Jews would accuse, reject, and ultimately crucify the Jewish Messiah. But the most proper response to the Jews rejecting Jesus is not anger or rage. The proper response is, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, to keep watch of ourselves. Don't point fingers at the Jews. Keep watch of yourself, lest you too be tempted. The lesson for us to take away is that we can fall into the same traps of hypocrisy and immorality and selfishness that they did, and God will not tolerate it. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's examine our hearts. Let's ask him to search us and know us and reveal any waywardness In our hearts, let's continually stand amazed before the holiness and righteousness of God who delivers justice 
against the wickedness. No matter your religious pedigree, no matter how important you may be on earth, God will not tolerate it. Israel is judged at the destruction of the temple, and we must learn from their example. As Jesus continues his discourse here, he next relates the further significance of the destruction of the temple. Matthew 24, verse 30, here's what he says. After the sun and moon are darkened, after the stars fall, after the heavens are shaken, in other words, after the temple is destroyed, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So once again here, Jesus uses language that to our ears may seem a little ambiguous or bizarre. What's this about? A dude riding on clouds to heaven? But Jesus' original Jewish audience would have followed him quite naturally because once again, he's using language that is scripturally loaded. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel is sharing a night vision he received from the Lord. And here's how he describes this night vision. It's going to sound a whole lot like what Jesus has just said here. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, the ancient of days being a reference to God. And the son of man was presented before the ancient of days. And to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in this vision, Daniel, like Jesus, also speaks of a figure referred to as the Son of Man. He's presented for, he's, he, he comes before the ancient of days, riding on clouds of heaven, just like Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. He's presented before the ancient of days, and he is given all glory, honor, and rulership forever. So this is like a coronation ceremony when a king receives his crown and scepter. Except it's not happening for an earthly king with a temporary kingdom. It's happening in heaven to the king of heaven with an eternal kingdom. Well, Jesus says that's what's taking place in heaven when the temple is destroyed on earth. The son of man comes on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, and he receives his eternal kingdom from the ancient of days. This is the significance of the destruction of the temple. Israel is judged and Jesus is enthroned. Jesus is enthroned. So the ancient prophecies revealed to Daniel are finally fulfilled. Not only did Jesus live and die and rise from the grave, but also when the temple was destroyed. God is communicating to the world that the nexus of power and authority is no longer the nation state of Israel. No longer is the center of God's purposes the physical temple. Instead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him who is the son of man, the king of heaven, the Lord Jesus. So one year ago this month, a new king 
sat on the throne of the NFL. Patrick Mahomes and his chiefs ruled the football world, dominating opponents week in and week out. All sorts of records were being broken. Predictions were made about their future triumphs and their sovereignty over the NFL seemed secure. That was just one year ago this month. But just a few weeks ago in this year's Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs got justice from Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Brady brought the thunder, dropped bombs, made it rain, and now Mahomes has been dethroned, and there is a new king, the true king, no longer is the mecca of professional football in Kansas City or New England. No longer is Patrick Mahomes the center of NFL glory. Instead, now it's in Tampa Bay, and Tom Brady is king. Some of you guys may not like to hear this. <laughs> Many of you Brady haters may hate to hear this. But this modern day athletic analogy captures the flow of events from verse 29 through verse 30. Israel was judged. God brought the thunder, shook the heavens, destroyed the temple, and Jesus takes the throne. He fulfilled the ancient promises made through the prophet Daniel that the Son of Man would come to heaven in glory and power riding on the clouds and he would be given an eternal kingdom, a forever throne. The destruction of the temple was the final exclamation point to the work of Christ. Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven and then the temple was destroyed. It was this final sign that the center of God's purposes on earth is not a city in the Middle East, Jerusalem. The center of God's purposes on earth is not a physical structure, the temple. The center of his purposes is Jesus. God's presence is found in Jesus, not the temple. God's forgiveness is found in Jesus, not the temple. God's voice is heard in Jesus, not the temple. We meet with God through Jesus, not at the temple. We are forgiven by God through Jesus, not the sacrifices made at the temple. We hear from God through Jesus, not from the teachers at the temple. We look to him, not Jerusalem, not anywhere else as our ultimate authority. Because for the first century Christians, many of them were tempted to go back to the old ways of the old covenant. There was a comfortability and a safety and a familiarity with doing things the way they'd always been done. But the New Testament writers and Jesus himself in this text are saying, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus is the pinnacle of redemptive history. Don't turn back the clock on salvation history to look to Jerusalem or the temple to find salvation and forgiveness. Israel is judged. Jesus is enthroned. And nothing is to rival him for our ultimate allegiance in life. So we've got to ask ourselves, what or who is king over your life? Who stands at the center of your universe? Is it money? Is it power? Is it popularity? 
Is it a politician? Is it a celebrity? Is it a relationship? What is it for you that is king of your heart? Recognize that Jesus is king. He is enthroned. His victory is certain. His reign is eternal. Bow to him. Give him your heart. Make him the center of your life. Israel is judged. Jesus is enthroned. And finally, Jesus tells us the gospel is global. The gospel is global. Look at what Jesus says here next in verse 31. After the Son of Man takes his throne, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather God's elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. So in just these few verses, 29, 30, 31, Jesus covers some major milestones in redemptive history. The temple is destroyed, the Son of Man takes his heavenly throne, and now we see that the Son of Man's mission goes global. Once again, no longer will Jerusalem and the activity in the temple be the primary focus of God's activity on earth. Instead, the Son of Man sends his messengers or angels Angels is just another word for messengers. He sends us in all four directions to cover everywhere under heaven, to gather God's elect. And this, of course, is a reference to our gospel preaching mission to take the good news of Jesus across the globe. And he likens the preaching of the gospel to the blowing of a trumpet. And the trumpet is a great instrument for catching people's attention. The trumpet was often used to call people's attention before a royal decree was made or to announce the arrival of a king in a certain place. And in many ways, that's what we're doing when we share the gospel. We preach what Jesus called the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We announce to every nation that the kingdom of God is near. The king has come. He laid down his life for sinners. He rose in victory. He reigns over all. Church, this is our task. This is our calling. This is our mandate from the king to signal boost the gospel to the four corners of the globe. So globalization, going global, our global village. These are all buzzwords that different business leaders use to describe the increasing desire to take advantage of opportunities on a global scale. Because of technological advancement and the ease of access, there is now more than ever a desire for many businesses to expand their brand and their product around the world. But well before cell phones and the internet, well before the automobile and the locomotive, well before even the telegraph and the printing press, God's people were called to take the gospel global. Ever since the start, we've been driving towards the unreached, pushing the geographical boundaries outward so that more and more of the world would be filled with the light of the gospel. The gospel is global, and we are called to participate as messengers of this great news. So what's your heart's posture toward the nations? Are you burdened for the areas of the world where the gospel's witness is little to none? 
Are you eager to see the gospel take new ground where previously false religions and empty ideologies had taken over? Church, do you realize that there are still billions of people on our planet who will be born and live and die and never even have a chance to hear the name of Jesus. Billions. They'll never have an opportunity. And yet our king has sent us to these very places. Our mission is to make the love of God in Christ where it is not yet known. Every Christ follower is called to engage in this mission. What part will you play? One of the ways that we can all play a part is to pray. We must pray for these areas of the world that have not been reached by the gospel. And a wonderful resource towards this end is a website called Operation World. So I've got the homepage of their website on the slide in front of you. The web address is simply operationworld.org and the tagline for this site is a definitive prayer guide for every nation. And what they mean by nation is not so much nation state like United States, Mexico, Canada. What they mean by nation is people group, which essentially amounts to different languages or tongues. A definitive prayer guide to every nation, and the website gives information about every people group on the planet. So I've got a slide with an example of their page for the nation of Mali, this huge chunk of land inland West Africa. The percentage of gospel Christians, they say, is less than 0.2% or some minuscule number like that. Islam is spread like wildfire there. For each one of these nations, it shares about their culture, their religious makeup, how much or how little the gospel has had an impact there. So we can pray for the nations. And this is a tool to help you do that, Operation World. Another way we can play a part is to send those who are called to leave our home nation and go to the unreached must be sent. Cross-cultural missionaries need prayer partners and financial partners in order to carry out their mission. So are you connected with some cross-cultural missionaries overseas? All of them now have email newsletters that go out. I have friends that I hear from in Papua New Guinea in the Pacific Islands and Malawi and South Africa and Nepal and Southeast Asia. Because of the internet, there's a great opportunity to stay connected with what God is doing around the world and to support what God is doing around the world and encouraging and giving financially to those who have left the comfort of home to go to the nations and trumpet the gospel. And then finally, along with praying and sending, perhaps God is calling some of us to go. May it be so that God would raise up, even from among us, laborers to go to the harvest. So Woodside has seen young people pursue their education overseas so that they could be in an environment that needs more gospel witness. And we've seen businessmen and women leave and start their careers in another country so that they could be a part of an effort to spread the gospel in less 
churched areas. And we've seen entire families uproot themselves and move to another country, another culture, so that they could make an impact for the gospel beyond the confines of Southeast Michigan or even the United States. And we've seen seniors who instead of using their retirement years to stay at home, have done just the opposite. They've left home. They've used their retirement years to go and be spent overseas and to continue working for the Great Commission. So what will your role be in this global mission? My encouragement to you is to be open, to surrender control. Let's ask God to speak to our hearts about how we'll be involved because the aim of the gospel is outward in all four directions. The risen reigning son of man sends us as his messengers on a global quest. This is the significance of the destruction of the temple. Israel is judged. Jesus is enthroned. And now our king has sent us global with his gospel. Now put yourself in the shoes of those original disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives having this little chat with Jesus. Remember they had asked about when the temple would be destroyed and here's Jesus' answer for them. His answer tells them what signs to look for and what signs not to look for. And his answer assures them of God's purposes, that he would be enthroned and he would start to reach the world. But perhaps still some of those disciples would have been uncertain. I mean, after all, the temple was a fixed piece of God's work in the world. The temple was a massive building and of massive importance for God's people. So perhaps some of them wondered if the temple could really be destroyed. Well, in order to counter that line of thought, Jesus adds these final words, verses 32 through 35. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the fig tree's branches become tender and put out their leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, When you see all these things happen that I've told you about leading up to the destruction of the temple, when you see all these things happen, you know that the end of the temple is near. It is at the very gates. So truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And indeed they didn't. It happened just a few decades later in AD 70. He says heaven and earth will pass away. But my word of promise will not pass away. So Jesus says in the same way that summer is indicated by the tenderness of a fig leaves branches and the leaves beginning to grow out. So also there will be these signs leading up to the temple's destruction. And Jesus assures his disciples that the temple will be destroyed in their generation. And he says, you will know about when it's going to happen based on these signs I've laid out for you. Then he adds in verse 35, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will stand forever. As they look into an unknown future, as they look into the bleakness of their region being wiped out, and the temple being destroyed by the Romans. He says to them, rely on my unchanging word. So we may hear about God's plans. 
And we may think, there's no way this is going to get done. The destruction of the temple, the enthronement of the Son of Man, the gospel going global, these are major mind-blowing events. If these things happen, it changes everything. Jesus says, bank on it. Rely on my word. Everything else may fail you. You may fail yourself. But my word is true, and my word is enduring. And so as we too likewise look into the future, we don't know what it holds for us. And we ask ourselves, what now? What next? We do not have every little detail of how the world will unfold, but we do know that we can rely on the unchanging word of the Lord. Many things will change. Many circumstances will confuse us, but God's word is clear and God's word is unchanging. Jesus' throne is established forever and his word is reliable forever. Let's look to him. Let's have confidence as we move boldly into an unknown future. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning having reflected earlier in the service about what we need to surrender, about what we need to give up. And for many of us, for myself, it's control and control over the future. Father, we release, we surrender. And God, in this place of openness and vulnerability, we receive your truth, that despite how little control we may have over how life plays out, despite how tempted we may be towards fear and anxiety, you are faithful and your word is true. Even though our money may fade away, even though our family may fade away, even though our bodies may fade away, even though heaven and earth may fade away, your word is eternal. Jesus' kingdom is eternal. And so we have reason to rejoice. God, may we, Woodside Lapeer, bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is hope and joy, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of death. You are faithful, you are true, and we look to our high king, the Lord Jesus. May he receive our praise as we join our voices with the chorus of heaven. In his name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.